we're here at the, resident, at the Reagan Library, which is really a great venue for us for a lot of reasons. Uh, when I interviewed Ronald Reagan some years ago for Reason Magazine, Ronald Reagan said that the heart and soul of conservatism is libertarianism. As we know, Barry Goldwater was a great libertarian, and Ward also is very much of a libertarian, I'm proud to say. So I feel for those of you who aren't yet libertarians, it's always good to realize if you take liberty seriously, sooner or later you will become a libertarian. And meanwhile, let me introduce you to one of the great uh, movement heroes for all of the right reasons, a man who's proud of the United States, and we're proud of what he's been doing for equal rights, Ward Connolly. Thank you all very much. I genuinely appreciate that. When I drove up, it was such a delight to see um, the parking lot filled with cars because it says that uh, there are people from all over this nation who are interested in the Reagan legacy and they're taking time out of their Saturdays to come visit it. So I'm just delighted to be here and to see that uh, that the legacy is alive. I was asked by Jean if I had any problems with uh, speaking while you're still eating your dessert. And ordinarily, I, I would have a problem with people on the other side of me with sharpened knives and forks. <laughs> um, but um, this audience doesn't bother me. I see an awful lot of friendly faces, and I'm just delighted to be with... Uh, Jean and, um, and Manny and my very, very dear friend Gail Harriet, who was at my right arm during the 209 campaign, and many others, uh, Carlos uh, B., a very good friend, uh, and uh, Ken Starr and others. So I'm, I'm just delighted to be here, and I want to share with you a little bit about our experiences uh, with direct democracy. Um, for me, this journey all began when I was serving my 12-year sentence on the Board of Regents um, of the University of California. I don't see Pete here, but Pete is the one who appointed me to that, and I often say that someday I'll get even with him. Um, but it was a delightful experience, and I, I left it with a sense of accomplishment, but my involvement in the in the area of getting rid of race preferences and trying to get us back to the meaning of uh, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution and treating people as individuals began on the Board of Regents where I put forth resolutions to extricate the university from the, the business of race-based decision-making. And... Subsequent to that, was invited to uh, take on the California Civil Rights Initiative. And I learned something about changing public policy when it comes to race that I should have known but um, really learned the hard way. And that is that 
Race is one of those subjects that deliberative bodies have a very difficult time addressing. Um, there are many other subjects that deliberative bodies have a difficult time addressing. Tax issue, term limits, many of the issues that in California could not have been addressed were it not for the people grabbing the pitchforks and charging the hills, so to speak, to bring about change because the, the, the institutions themselves have become paralyzed and incapable of dealing with controversial issues. And that's really why they ought to be there, but they are incapable of dealing with issues that, uh, where the country is deeply divided and especially with regard to race. And so if you want to make changes in the area of race, I concluded that the only way to do that is to go to the people. I had a college professor once who said that we all have a knower, K-N-O-W-E-R, and our knower tells us certain things. We as a people know that it's wrong to judge people by the color of their skin or their gender or where their granddaddy came from. We know that. But when you take that idea, that very simple idea, to a deliberative body, whether it's a board of regents or whether it's a city council or whether it is to a board of supervisors or a legislature or the Congress, you will not get action on that unless they believe that they're giving someone something. If they're going to extend race preferences to a group, you can get them to do that. But when it comes to taking away preferences, legislative bodies, representative government does not want to be in the position where they can be accused of taking away opportunities from anyone. And they, are, they, they mask all of that with a lot of double talk about affirmative action and diversity and all of that. But the reality is that there is massive paralysis in, in representative government that prohibits them from being able to deal with issues that I am very concerned about and many of you are concerned about and would like to have legislative bodies address. So those of us that want to make change in those areas, we are left with no choice but to round up our fellow citizens and to put on the ballot for them to approve those policies that could not otherwise come about. And that's kind of odd because the issues that uh, we have given to the people invariably are very popular with the people. Proposition 209 passed 55-45 and 96, same year that the medicinal marijuana issue was on the ballot and we didn't dope them up to vote for, <laughs> for 209. Um, two years later in Washington State, the same language passed 5941, and most recently in 2006, it passed in the state of Michigan, 5842. Three of the bluest of blue states in our country were the people themselves said that we will ignore the, the court which said that you can use race to pursue diversity. They ignored the Democrat Party. They ignored a very, um, 
effective Democrat governor and Republican candidate for governor, and they ignored the trade unions and and the automakers and uh, the college there, the University of Michigan's very powerful. They ignored all of those and voted 58 to 42 in favor of the very simple language, quote, the state, small s, shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in the operation of public employment, public education, or public contracting. Gail Harriet used to say, simple, direct, 37 words. Um, people understand it, but it goes to the heart of who we are as a people, and we believe in fairness. And that language uh, elicits that spirit of fairness from all of us, and the people support it. Now, I'm not, I don't want to talk to you about the whole issue of preferences, but rather about the process that uh, we have to go through to get to get that very principle respected and honored um, by institutions in our country. There are 24 states that allow the initiative, 23, 24, that allow the initiative. We have done three of them, three down, 20 to go, I guess some would say. We've done three, and I think that as a result of doing those three, we have been able to reaffirm that the American people really do want their government, not necessarily their society, but they want their government to be blind to factors such as race, whatever that is, in this era in which people are marrying across lines of race and having children. I don't know what race really is in that context. Is it texture of hair, if you have any? Um, is it color of skin where your ancestors came out? I don't know what race really is anymore. Um, but certainly I think that the American people are saying that they really want a colorblind government. And some would argue that maybe they want a colorblind society. Um, the phenomenon of Senator Obama is one that um, is of great fascination to me. When I was in college, I had a professor, John Livingston, a very liberal man who um, belonged to the ACLU and to the NAACP. And after every uh, lecture, he would raise his right hand and say, we shall overcome. And I was his reader, and I once asked, when we were sitting in his office, Dr. Livingston, when will we know that we have overcome? And he said, Mr. Connerly, he always called me Mr. Connerly, the day that a black man, because it was unthinkable that a woman would be president, <laughs> the day that a black man can be a serious candidate for president, a serious candidate, doesn't have to win, but a serious candidate is the day that we will have overcome. And I think in saying that, that uh, as I look at the candidacy of Senator Obama, I think we're, we're overcoming. I hope we don't get carried away. As, uh, <laughs> but I think that it's, it's fair to say that he is getting a very, very serious shot. And as an aside, I would say that I, 
I'm not troubled by the uh, audacity of his hopefulness. It's the arrogance of his ambition and the extreme nature of his vision with respect to issues like taxes and universal health care paid for by the government that give me pause, great pause. But I'm proud of my country and the fact that it has now reached the point where they're willing to entertain a man or woman for president with regard, without regard to those traits of race and gender. Now, there, we have a lot of divisions in our country, but I think that the biggest conflict we have is between representative government and direct democracy. Those in the representative government arena, they have total contempt for the most part with those of us outside that arena who dare to go to the people and ask the people, what do you want to do about the issue of how long someone should serve in the legislature or um, whether what the tax bite should be on property taxes or whether the government should be treating people differently because of the factors of skin color and race. In every one of the states that we've been involved in, we've had to fight the issue, except California, where I am um, a res resident. We've had to fight the issue of whether we're carpetbaggers, whether we have a right to work alongside the residents of that state to try to change policy in that state. And Republicans and Democrats alike give us grief because they really don't want us to get on the ballot. Uh, in the state of Missouri, we offered those 37 words to the Secretary of State and the Attorney General. And um, again, the words were that the state shall treat everybody the same. Well, the Secretary of State, working with the Attorney General, changed our language to say that this initiative would ban affirmative action programs that were designed to provide opportunities to women and minorities. Um, a perversion of the language that we gave, but they were clearly trying to prejudice the outcome by putting on the ballot a summary of our initiative that would cause people to believe that this was a draconian measure that was designed to hurt women and minorities. Now, thankfully, a judge there, an equally liberal Democrat judge, uh, saw his duty as being greater than that of his political party, who had been lobbying hard to get that language, that perverted language on the ballot, he overturned the Secretary of State and the Attorney General, and he said that was not fair language. But in every state in which we're involved, and now it's, it's, uh, it has been California, Michigan, and Washington, we were also in Florida, and could not get on the ballot there because the court would not let us on, claiming that we were violating the single subject rule, uh, arguing that race preferences and gender preferences are different subjects. And uh, in order to eliminate preferences based on identity, we would need a, an initiative that was limited to race preferences in public education. We'd need a separate one relating to gender preferences in public education. And you go through all of those different venues and all of those five factors, and we would have needed about a hundred different initiatives. 
to um, enforce the very simple command of everybody being treated equally without regard to race, color, or national origin, which is the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So in Florida, we had problems and did not get on the ballot, but Governor Jeb Bush there did, in fact, give us executive orders that accomplished a large part of what we want. Now we're in Nebraska, Arizona, Colorado, Missouri, and Missouri, um, and, and uh, Oklahoma. And in every one of those states, we're fighting different problems, uh, all driven by the desire of representative government to keep us off the ballot. In one case, um, there is an initiative being floated, a counter-initiative, in the state of Colorado that has identical language to ours in the first paragraph, the prohibition against preferential treatment. But then they have a second paragraph which says that it will be okay for government actors to comply with the standards set by the U.S. Supreme Court, which leaves in place the preferences as they are right now. And next week, Manny will argue um, on our behalf that this is having, having dual initiatives on the ballot with the same language, except for that second paragraph, is really confusing and a distortion of um, what the process is supposed to allow. In the state of Oklahoma, we have had blockers who have tried to keep those who circulate petitioners from being able to get to the citizens that they would like to have sign the ballot. And these blockers will stand between, if I'm trying to get Ken Starr's signature, they will stand between us and say, he's a racist, don't sign his petition. Um, and as a result, a lot of people will just walk away because they don't want to have to contend, contend with that kind of harassment. But the process is becoming far more difficult as we go along because of this contempt that many elected officials have for the audacity of citizens to be trying to change things even after they have been incapable of changing them. The, the bar is very high in many of these states. In um, Oklahoma, for example, we have to get, if you want to get something on the ballot, you have to get 15% of the signatures of the highest vote getter in the last election. Now, what that means is it's about double what the normal requirement is. The normal requirement is about 8%. 15% is double. And you have 90 days to do it. In most states, you have six months to do it. In some states, you have an unlimited amount of time. But... 15% as compared to 8, 90 days as compared to a minimum of 6. The circulators cannot do it unless they are residents of that state. In some states, you have to notarize the back of the petition before you can turn it in. All of this is designed to make it impossible for anyone to be able to get initiatives on the ballot. Now... I try not to take partisanship into account 
as we get involved in these initiatives, because the principle of equal rights, in my view, has no partisan flavor to it. It belongs to everybody. Civil rights belong to everyone. But I find it hard to understand how Republicans can oppose citizens engaging in the process of affecting changes that affect their communities. Ronald Reagan often talked about that government is best, which is closest to the people. Doesn't get any closer than the people circulating petitions and putting initiatives on the ballot. Moreover, as many of our states become single party states, like California, as our nation becomes, to a large extent, a single party nation, Democrat controlled Senate, Democrat controlled House of Representatives, possibly, I pray that the good Lord will intervene, but possibly a Democrat controlled presidency, we will have a single party nation. And the only way to put a firewall um, there to prevent egregious policies from being enacted, in my view, is for the people in individual states, individual communities, being able to take action themselves. And so I think that the initiative process will be one of the most important tools that will be there for the people to try to govern themselves in the face of those single-party states or single-party single party nation. If we're going to keep moving the ball up the field in the area of, race, of getting rid of race preferences, it is critical that at least we have the capacity and the freedom to operate in those remaining states that allow the initiative process. So I implore anyone who is interested in preserving direct democracy to understand what is going on in all of these different states and to try to enlist you to assist in making sure that the playing field is level, if you will, uh, for the citizens to be able to operate within the context of the process that currently exists. Um, if we can do that, if we can do that, there is no doubt in my mind that the people of every state who have the, the opportunity of voting on these issues, whether it's term limits or uh, somehow curtailing the unbridled growth of property taxes or curtailing illegal immigration, the voters understand these issues. Uh, I often hear that, geez, d d direct democracy is messy. Well, it is. But I have always been amazed at the ability of the American people in whatever state we're involved in to really sort it all out. And certainly the things that they do are no worse than will be done by the legislatures and the other governing bodies. I far more prefer to have the people chew over these issues and noodle over them and make a decision than virtually any deliberative body I can name in this country. So I'm delighted to be with you and to share my thoughts about uh, the process. Um, direct democracy is critical to me. I would... I would pray that every state had it, but they don't. But certainly the ones where it is now allowed, let's not erode that process any further and make it 
impossible for the citizens to act. We can trust the people. They will get it right. But it's our task to make sure that the process stays intact. So thank you very much for inviting me and giving me an ear to, uh, to share my thoughts with you. We have some time for questions of our uh, master planner and the man on the front line. So uh, no forks or knives, but uh, we welcome any kind of speech here. Uh, who would like to start off? Oh, the microphone's over there. I'll, uh, so we have number one over there. Go ahead. Uh, I wanted to ask, what, uh, how, if you, how far would you what would you take things in terms of what would you let, uh, do you think the process goes far enough at this stage, or should there be more uh, uh, things done through direct democracy? Should there be things done at the national level through direct democracy? Where, where, where would you take things ideally if you had your druthers? Well, if I ideally had the opportunity, I would have, I would uh, allow every state, and certainly they are allowed, but their individual constitutions don't allow it. But the form of government that I think uh, makes sense is, is the hybrid um, government in which you have direct democracy along with representative government. The fact is that representative government is failing us. When you hear the call for change coming from Democrats, um, part of that is just partisanship to get the country in the thought mode of, of going to a voting Democrat. But part of that is real. Representative government is failing. They're, they're incapable of solving a lot of the problems that affect the people. And when you look at the fundamental changes that have occurred, take our own state of California. Uh, property taxes, Prop 13. Bilingual education, 165. Um, ending preferences, 209. Most of the major reforms have, have occurred not from the legislature, but from the people themselves. And so I would, uh, I'm a strong advocate of allowing the people to freely do that. Now, sure, you're going to have people hiring others to collect signatures, but what's wrong with that? The important thing is that once it gets on the ballot, it's not the consultant or the circulator from Colorado that is going to vote. It's the people who are voting. Uh, and so, and so I, I'm a strong advocate of, of giving the people the right and the ability to get something on the ballot to vote for. And the whole question of, well, it's so complicated, you learn more about an issue, the nuances of an issue, by letting the people chew over it over a six or 12 month period than you will ever learn by reading in the newspaper about what the legislature did. It's a great way of educating people about that given issue. I know that when it comes to race preferences, the level of understanding on the part of the people was infinitely higher on election day for Proposition 209 than anything that I'd ever seen on that issue before that. People didn't know how many applicants there were going to the University of California. They didn't even know that the University of California had a point system. 
So it's a great opportunity of involving people and educating them about a specific issue over a sustained period of time. And I have no fear about the people getting it right. They will never get it as wrong, in my view, as the legislative body. How much of a consideration should the economic cost of direct democracy be taken into account? For instance, the cost of running an election. We remember the heat that Governor Schwarzenegger took for the $60 million price tag of the special election in 2005. Um, And if it's a consideration, how do you think the advent of modern information technology affects that? Wow. The... um I certainly would not put any limits on how much money the people can raise to put an issue on the ballot. If you're asking about how much about the cost of uh, the, the, the governmental cost, um, again, I don't think you can put a price tag on that. If the people decide that something is of sufficient importance that they want to put it on the ballot and they gather the signatures that's that's the that's the process. That's the name of the game. And uh, once they gather the signatures and the, the election is scheduled anyway, then that's just the roll of the dice, if you will. What disturbed me was um, one of the the only initiative that we've ever lost, frankly, was an initiative that would have forbid uh, would have prohibited the government from classifying us according to race. Proposition 54 in 2003, um, which was, in my view, the most important thing I've ever tried to do in my lifetime and failed. But um, I want to get the government out of the race business. And Prop 54 would have done that by saying you can't classify people. And by not being able to classify people, all this goofy data that has gathered about 47% of these and 37% of those, and all of that would crumble because if you can't gather the, if you can't classify people, then we would stop thinking about ourselves in terms of race and color. But we got caught up in the recall election and Arnold Schwarzenegger just sucked all of the money and all of the air out of campaigns that others were trying to uh, wage. And as a result, we were clobbered. Uh, in that campaign, the teachers unions opposed us for some rather obvious union reasons. The tribes, the Indian tribes gave Cruz Bustamante about four million dollars, as you may recall, uh, to get his mug on the on TV. And he used it to say that our initiative was a bad initiative. And then C. Everett Koop uh, said that this is a matter of life and death. You have to be able to classify people and not being able to do so would cause us all to die. (laughs) And um, so the initiative was uh, clobbered because of because of that. But I I have no problem with the cost issue. Uh, Ward, you mentioned the, uh, the, the situation in Missouri where a Democrat judge voted against his own political predilections and was fair. But is that Was that an anomaly? I remember in California, uh, the district court overturned Proposition 209, Judge Thornton Henderson, until a fortuitously appointed panel of the Ninth Circuit overruled him. But what's been your experience with the judiciary with regard to all of these ballot propositions? Um, Out of the 
nine states that we have uh, been involved in, I would say in four of them, the um, judiciary was, to be kind, activist. Um, to be unkind, there are words I can't use in this audience. <laughs> but um, we've had some very bad experiences. There is a challenge to the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative right now in, um, in Michigan, in the 6th District there, I believe. And the rumor has it, and, you know, you can't, you, you don't know whether to believe these things or not, but the rumor has it that uh, the district judge there is uh, poised to rule that Proposal 2 is unconstitutional. And the issue that was raised by this group, the Coalition to Preserve Affirmative Action, Immigrant Rights, and Integration by Any Means Necessary, BAM, the, 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 the suit that they filed was that our initiative violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment because women and minorities now have to go to the ballot to change and reclaim preferences, and that's an undue advantage, disadvantage, being foisted upon them, and therefore that violates the Equal Protection, protection Clause of the Constitution. I mean, it's so convoluted, I have a hard time explaining it to you. Um, but that's, that's the claim, and it's sort, of like, it's sort of like the same claim that Felton Henderson employed in saying that 209 was, was unconstitutional. But the, um, the problems we've had with the judiciary have been considerable. And I think they're part of, they're part of that um, elite that don't like the people getting involved in these issues. I mean, just because you put on a robe, with all due respect to any here who, who uh, do, just because you put on that robe doesn't mean you cease to be political in nature. And we are fighting, those of us who believe in direct democracy, we're fighting the elites. They don't want issues on the ballot. They want to be able to make decisions, deliberating over them themselves, and they have nothing but contempt for the people trying to affect change themselves. I'm wondering if you can comment, you've already kind of commented on the kind of the judicial aftermath where you've succeeded, but um, what other comments would you have on, in California or the other two states where the initiative passed uh, with uh, cities or municipalities or colleges or universities somehow uh, either just flatly disobeying it, getting around it, I have a sneaking suspicion yeah. whenever I hear any news about what's going on in the University of California that that they're not doing what 209 says they should be doing. wonder if you have any comments on it. Yeah, that is a huge problem. Uh, elected officials, again, who are part of that establishment, who want to circumvent whatever it is that has been approved by the voters. And in the case of anti-preferences. In Michigan, for example, Mary Sue Coleman, the president of the university, went out into the quad area of the university the day after the election and basically said, we're going to keep doing what we've always done to pursue diversity. 
And it wasn't until the uh, many donors contacted her and said, if you disobey the will of the people, I'm cutting you off at the pockets on my contribution. And I know one dentist who gives in the range of $20 million a year. And uh, he said to her, you'll never get another dime from me if you uh, if you go ahead with what you're trying to do here. And she reversed course. But there are a lot of public agencies. Uh, Pacific Legal Foundation, for example, has spent an awful lot of time dealing with uh, these different agencies that try to circumvent the will of the people. Um, a lot of this goes to the whole issue of political correctness. And Diane, when a member of my staff, sent me a um, sent me a definition of political correctness that I want to share with you. Apparently, every year, Texas A&M has a contest. And the purpose of this contest is to um, award a prize to the most appropriate definition of a contemporary term. And this year, uh, the winning entry, this is true, was for defining political correctness. It's a doctrine fostered by a delusional, illogical, liberal minority and rapidly promoted by the unscrupulous mainstream media, which holds forth the proposition that it is entirely possible to pick up a turd by the clean end. Mess with direct democracy. You have to sometimes pick things up by an awkward end. But this is, uh, thank you so much, Ward, for your eloquent comments.